The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. This is the view that Jesus has on the scriptures. And it's kind of important for me that we as a church have the same view of all the scriptures as Jesus did. So we read in verse 17, and Jesus says, Do not think that I come to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. (coughs) Excuse me. Then verse 19 says, Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called the great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, today there are many uh, false churches, what I call them. And they're really hard to distinguish that they are a false church because these are kind of churches where you have to distinguish not necessarily that they're wrong theology, but it's from the right and almost right theology and their doctrine. In Galatians, Paul writes in 1 Galatians uh, verse 6 and 7 says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. You know, sometimes they, you know, it's very easy to spot if it's a different gospel. But then he goes on to say in verse 7, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Remember, it's kind of like the uh, temptation when Jesus was tempted by the Satan. You know, the devil was quoting scripture and so forth, but it was perverted. So sometimes you don't really necessarily see it. And the reason Jesus kind of answered with Scripture, because a lot of us don't study it, right? So we can't answer like Jesus answered. Sometimes it's just like, hey, it's good, it sounds great, and so forth. And that's why Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the laws or the prophets. And it's interesting, again, to point out when Jesus was being tempted, him being God in flesh, He did not make up his own verses. He did not make up new scripture. What he did was he relied on the Old Testament, and he quoted the Old Testament. Because, as we studied, it is authored by God. And in John uh, chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, it says, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. And if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whenever it's from God or whenever I speak in my own authority. So it's interesting, even Jesus, God in flesh, relied on the Old Testament, on the Scriptures, and he spoke on the authority of God, not his own authority. Well, what is this doctrine? Well, Proverbs 4.2 says, For I give you a good doctrine, (laughs) do not forsake my law. You see, there's this false interpretation of concept of justice, justification in this Old Testament. Uh, well, we do teach that you've been justified by faith alone, and since you've been made just by God, since he declared us saved, 
And since the Bible says we're no longer under the law, now grace is so generous, you know, grace is so wonderful, it reaches so far, a lot of teaching there now, you can just do whatever you want. Because you're no longer under the law, you're under grace. You can live however you want, not worry about it. And this freedom in Christ has been equated with doing what you want. And this was the attitude of ancient Israel during the time of Judges. In Judges 21-25, we read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no king. You know, we study the Beatitudes, how we belong to this kingdom and so forth. But in churches these days, they talk a big game about the kingdom of God, the Beatitudes, being in the kingdom. But we live <laughs> like there's no king of this kingdom. We want the kingdom, but we just don't like the king, right? And what we do is we make up our own image of this king where because we're under grace, anything goes. You know, sometimes there's a, this teaching dualism. Basically, it's a uh, Christian has two parts, his old man, and there's the new creature. So when the old man sins, you can't do nothing about it. It's just rotten, so go ahead and live because flesh doesn't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Your spirit does, so you can go ahead and sin in the flesh, but your spirit is clean. Well, that was just anti-biblical, and that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible never teaches that we are to be lawless, to live against the divine standard that God sets here, Jesus, and these beatitudes and what we've been studying so far. But there is this great question of the law. What is the Christian's relation to the law of God? We've been saved by faith. Bible talks about it, being free from the law. But what, what does it mean by that we're still obligated to obey? Just as we sang this morning, trust and obey. Well, why do we have to obey? And Jesus himself said, right, if you love me, you obey my commandments. Well, if we're not under the law, why would we have to obey those commandments? So Jesus answers really this questions in Matthew 5.19. He says, whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we talked about in verse 17 the preeminence of the law, which is the great authority. It was authored by God. If It was affirmed by the prophets and accomplished by Jesus Christ himself, and he says, do not think, in verse 17, I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then in verse 18, we talked about the permanence of the law. For surely I say to you, earth will pass away, not one jot, one tittle will pass. Now in verse 19, he's talking about pertinence. You see, Jews of that time were still under the full requirement of the Old Testament law. So for those when Jesus is talking, they're still under the full requirements of the Old Testament law. So Jesus in 17 and 18 declares that he comes to fulfill, not to diminish, or to disobey the law, 
or set it aside. And then in verse 19, he says, the citizens of his kingdom are also not to diminish or to disobey. So he did come not to put it away, not to diminish it. He came to fulfill it. It's permanent. And then verse 19 again, he says, the kingdom citizens should not break at one least of these commandments. So the, the, the law is really <clears throat> the character of God. And what's interesting is in verse 19, if we're looking at it, it says, whoever therefore breaks one of these, least of these commandments, be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So because, folks, the word of God has complete authority, and because the law of God is permanent, as he said in verse 18, not one John Tittle will pass away, therefore, it's authority, it's permanent, he says it must be obeyed. Because the Bible, as some people teach, is not just the collection of men's religious ideas, but God's revelation of truth. And it's commands in here. You know, sometimes we read the Bible as it's a suggestion. The Bible makes no suggestions because it's authority. It commands. It's requirements to be followed because the scripture is given by God for man. So if it's given by God to us, nothing could be more relevant in our life than the word of God. So this word, this verse is talking about obeying. But not only it's talking about the obeying of God's law, but it's talking about the consequences. The consequences of the law depend on person's response to it. Whoever responds to it in a positive way, there's a positive result. But whoever responds to it in a negative way will see a negative result. And what's this negative result? Well, he mentions the first, she, he mentions it first, he says, person shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So the idea here, folks, we cannot annul or set aside God's law or make it void or loose ourselves from it, from these requirements and standards. You see, we're always trying to say, oh, that's in the Old Testament or, you know, that doesn't apply. Or we have a little list that things we do, we don't do. But in James chapter 2, verse 10 says, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So if you break one of these least commandments Jesus is talking about, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. And you know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 10, he says, For we shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive things done in the body according to what he has done whenever it's good or bad. 
And reading this verse, it also kind of reminded me of people in Psalm 2. It says, why do nations rage and people plot vain things? The kings of earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointing and saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This is not just happening in an unbelieving world. We don't want God's laws. We don't want his cords. They're binding to us. But even Christians are tempted to modify or weaken God's standards. It may be because of ignorance. It may be because misunderstanding. Some people just disregard it completely. But Christians find reasons to make God's commands less demanding than they are. But when a Christian ceases to obey God's word, even in the slightest degree, as we see here, he's being unchristlike. He says he will be called least in the kingdom. And what's interesting, the Jews during that day had divided the Old Testament into two categories. They had 248 positive commands and 365 negative commands. And what they were doing is debating which law in each category was the most important and which was least important. And keep in mind... There were parts of the Old Testament law. We talked about the ceremonial law, civil, judicial parts. They would be filled in Christ's time, but you have to go back to that time. All the entire structure of the Old Testament, it was still binding on these people. But what's interesting, there are different degrees of commands. Scripture makes itself clear that God's commands are not all equal of importance. And when a lawyer among the Pharisees uh, was asking Jesus which commandment was the greatest, right? In Matthew 22, verse 37, 39, says, Jesus said to him, You shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus even acknowledged that one commandment is supreme over the other. And the other is second in importance. And other commandments kind of follow it. But in his series where he always calls Jews, uh, the Pharisees, hypocrites and so forth, we can also see that when he's accusing them of being hypocrites. For example, if you look at Matthew 23, 23, it says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe and mint, anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So I think today, you know, murderers, worse than failing to give God what's his on tithing. So there's this different or different degrees of these matters of the law. But Jesus' point here, however, it is not permissible where he says to neglect by ignoring, modifying, obeying 
even to one of the least of these commandments. It says you should tithe, you should do those things, but there's weighty, you know, weightier things that you ignored. And Paul reminded the Ephesians in the church while he ministered to them, he preached the whole counsel of God. Not just grace, how great it is and so forth, but in Acts 20, 27, it says, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul did not pick and choose what he would teach from the law. He stressed some things more than others, but he didn't leave anything out. And the person who teaches others to disregard, to disobey any part of God's word is even a worse offender. And that's why James cautions people. says, my brethren, let not, in James 3, chapter 3, uh, verse 1, she says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing we shall receive stricter judgment. You see, every believer is accountable for himself, but those who teach are also accountable for whom they teach. And this is nothing new. It's also in the Old Testament. If you look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, it says, The elder honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who lead them by them are destroyed. So I want you guys to understand something, folks, here where he's talking about Sometimes we just think these verses are referring to leaders, those who are teaching. But in verse 19 uh, 19 of Matthew 5, you see where it says, but whoever does and teaches them. So teaches men. You see, whoever, Jesus' warning is not simply to official leaders or teachers. It's every person teaches and folks if you're the salt and light of the world all of you are teachers you are teaching people around you by example people around you are you helping them to become more obedient or more disobedient they're looking at your life are you obedient to the word or not if we hold the word of God high we teach love and respect for it, or we just say, eh, that's just a suggestion. Disregard it, disrespect it. So we set an example to those around us. And when we ignore the demands of the Word of God, as Jesus said here, we give testimony that it's unimportant to us. And Paul also reminded the Ephesian church that he had been faithful in teaching them full word again in Acts 20, 28. It says, therefore, take heed of yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made your overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's one thing. But then he says also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. So the consequence, folks, of practicing or teaching disobedience of any God's word is to be called 
the least in the kingdom of heaven. And it shows us not what other people think of us, but this is what God thinks of us. You know, oftentimes, folks, we don't know other people's disobedience, do we? You guys all look so heavenly and today. But how was your work week? Did anyone have a moment you had to lay your religion aside? 20 years ago, I used to be a debt collector. And the rules were totally different, you know. And I worked, and next to me sat this lady. She was also a Christian. And we would sing Amazing Grace and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes she would just get this call, and she would say, Cornet, close your ears. I'm going to have to set my religion aside. Do we set our religion aside at times? So we don't know. I don't know all of your obedience, but God knows. So it should be a concern for every believer who loves the Lord. I don't want to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, determining the rank of heaven, that's all God's work. But there is this thing that some will be least and some will be great. And it's all God's work. In Matthew 20, 23, uh, Jesus says this. He says to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I baptized with. But to sit on my right hand on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those who it, it is prepared by my Father. So, folks, Jesus, what's interesting enough, is not referring to the loss of salvation because it's clear from the fact that You'll be called least in the kingdom, so you're still in the kingdom. But there's this blessing, reward, fruitfulness, joy, usefulness that does not extend to those who disobey God's word. And in 2 John verse 8, he warns us and tells us, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for but that we may receive a full reward. You see, it's possible to lose the second, what I call the second phase of our Christian lives, which we try to build up in the first. And to ignore the smallest parts of God's law is to be guilty of violating it all because they're all inseparable. In James 2.10, it says, For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble at one point, he's guilty of all. Now, these types of Christians receive this, what's interesting is the lower rank, if you would, in the kingdom, not necessarily because, you know, they, didn't, they weren't a preacher or something, not because of their talents, you know, not everybody could sing, not everybody could preach. But they received this lower rank, least in the kingdom of God, by their attitude towards the Word of God. Now, there's also this positive consequence. In Matthew 5, 19, it says, But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
and to be called great in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus mentions two aspects, doing also and teaching. So kingdom citizens are to uphold every part of the law, both in their living and their teaching. And Paul writes to Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, he says, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we extorted and comforted and charged every one of you as the Father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. In Thessalonians 4, 7, he says, For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but to holiness. You see, this God's law, this moral law, is still binding on us. Paul had been faithful to live and to teach people just he's done everywhere where he ministered. Because God's moral law is a reflection of God's character, and God's character don't change. So you see, Paul not only did, but he also taught. He writes to Timothy. He says, these things command and teach in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11-12. So he was teaching Timothy, and he was telling him, these things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but example of believers in the word, conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. So how can people say we are no longer the law and we can just live and do what we want? And he again writes to Timothy in chapter 6, verses 11, 12, says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight. Lay a hold on the eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession. The good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul kept the law and taught the full word of God and he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And again, this greatness is not determined by gifts, success, or popularity of his ministry, but the believer's view of scripture and how we apply it to our lives and teach. So Jesus' promise applies to every believer who teaches others to obey the Word of God by faithfully and carefully and living it out themselves. So we see in this verse 19, there is positive and negative consequences of not keeping what Jesus calls these commandments, this law. And Paul kept all these because he knew he wanted to be great in the kingdom. He wanted to get some bling. He, what I call, he, there's different crowns that he's going to be awarded. There's a crown of righteousness. You see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says, finally, there's a laid up for me the crown of righteousness. So God is going to give him a crown of righteousness. There's also a crowd of rejoicing. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2.19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? 
Remember, he talked about this runner's crown. It's an imperishable crown in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24, 27. But I'll just skip to verse 25 where he says, but we are for the imperishable crown. There's a crown of life in Revelation 2.10. He says, do not fear of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. You will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death. Be faithful until death. And I will give you a crown of life. Peter talks about the crown of glory in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. It says, Shepherd the flock, God which is among you, servant as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. There's about five different or six different crowns waiting for you in heaven. And he's adding these crowns because, and he's going to receive them because Paul had not broken God's law willfully and unrepentantly. But he upheld God's law and taught others to keep God's law. You see, people say, when you get to verse 19, they say, well, it was before the cross, so it doesn't apply. We can just free will it from here and break a few commandments here and there. Well, did it really end at the cross? Did, what ended at the cross? Was all these laws finished at the cross? You see, what I want to clarify, because first we're told we're under grace, we're no longer under law. But then we're told we have to obey the law. Isn't that like a little paradox? And we see that in Paul's letters. On one hand, we're told the law is being fulfilled and done away with. On the other hand, it's still obligated to obey. What's happening here? Kind of confusing. You see, when church came into existence, the civil, judicial laws crumbled and they disappeared. We talked about that. In God's eyes, Israel was temporarily set aside at the cross because they did not accept him and rejected his kingdom. Also, ceremonial law came to an end. We read in Mark 15, 38, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. All these temple worship sacrifices were no longer valid, even symbolically. There's also a sense in which the moral law is no longer biting on believers. And Paul speaks of that in Romans 6, 14. He says, For the sin shall have no dominion over you, for you are, no, for you are not under law, but under grace. And again, a lot of people say, you see, we're not under the law, we're under grace. But they didn't read the couple of verses prior to that where it says in verses 12 and 13, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey in its lusts. Well, wait a minute. I'm not under the law. 
I'm under grace, but here she says, don't let it rain, you should obey. And in verse 13 says, do not present your members as instrument of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And in verse 15 says what? What then? Shall we sin because we are, no, we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. You see, those who are in Christ, we're no longer under the ultimate penalty, which is the condemnation. But we are far from free from its requirement of righteousness. In Romans 10, verse 4, again, Paul writes and says, For Christ is the end of law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture here for a second. But in Galatians, then he says, But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So if you're led on by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And he made it clear that Christians are not at least free from God's moral standards. In Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and those are contrary to one another. So you do the things you do not wish. In Romans 3.20 he says, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of sin. In Romans 3, 21, 22 says, Now, but that righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law, the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no difference. You see, the law was a tutor that led us to Christ all the time. In Galatians 3, 24, Therefore the law was a tutor to bring to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And when we're justified by faith in Galatians 3.26, it says, For you now are the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And what is his clothing if we put on Christ? It's practical righteousness. You see, if Christ's own righteousness never diminished or he never disobeyed God's moral law, how can we as his disciples be free to do so? Again, the gospel does not overthrow the law. What the gospel does is it actually exalts the law. Because we can never forget for Christ to save us, he had to fulfill the whole penalty of the law for every man that ever lived. So when person is trusted in Christ, folks... We're no longer under the condemnation of the law. That's why it says you'll still be in heaven. But this law applies to us till the day you die. In Romans 7, 1, it says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has a dominion over a man as long as he lives. As long as he lives. So when you die, that's when the law ends. That's when it doesn't have dominion over you. So if you're going to a funeral, you're back at the hearse, you're in that pine box, and the driver, you know, gets a speeding ticket, 
guess what? You're not getting the speeding ticket. You're no longer under the law, right? That's when the law ends for us. That's when it has no power over you. And some people take this grace so out of context that they even say that I no longer have to confess my own sins. As a Christian, yes, we do sin, but you see, I can sin all I want to. I just don't want to. But when we stumble and fall, we confess it because I'm no longer under the condemnation of this law. But how do I know if I sinned? Because the law shows me my sin. We are free in some sense, but the law is also kind of binding in another sense, isn't it? Paul harmonized this idea when he spoke of himself as being, uh, in 1 Corinthians 9.21, as being those who are without the law as without the law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. So in Christ, folks, we're anything but lawless. The Old Testament moral law is still applying to us today. In Romans 7, 7, it says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. See, this is Paul saying, this is how it's binding to us. How did Paul know covetousness was a sin? Because the law says, but you see with him, he may, he may not never coveted anything, but the thing is, doesn't mean that he didn't want to. It talks about this inward desires. Paul thought he was a holy Pharisee here, you know, before his conversion, but he coveted in his heart. He may not have performed the act physically, but doesn't mean that he never had it in his heart. So Paul says, because of this law, now I know that it's a sin. In Romans 7, 8, he says, But sin, taken opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. You see, the law helps us see our own wickedness in our own flesh, our helplessness apart from Christ. And even when we see this condemnation in uh, verses 9 through 11 in Romans, it says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found bring death. For sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. So it should remind us that our Savior, if you're in Christ, took that condemnation upon himself on the cross. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 8.1, says, Therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we have to walk in the Spirit. 
And 1 Peter 2.24 says, He who himself bore the sins of his own body on the tree, that we haven't died to sins, wait, have to die to sins? Might live for righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. Whenever a Christian looks at God's moral law with humility, meekness, and a sincere desire for righteousness, you see, the law will always point to Christ because that's what the law intended to do. And again, God's law reflects God's character. And Paul writes in Romans 7, 12, 4, says, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good. Wait a minute, Paul, you're confusing again. Saying we're not under the law, but now he's saying it's holy, it's just, and it's good. And then in Romans 7, 25 says, And with that mind I, I myself deserve of law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. You see, this law of righteousness that we need to have in ours was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, 4, Paul writes that the righteousness requirement of the law might be filled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So it's all about walking in the Spirit. The moral laws that Jesus is talking about still apply to us. And folks, I'm going to read Galatians 5, uh, 13 to 24, and we'll end there. But I want you to pay attention to something. It says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Right? So we're liberty. And a lot of people say, well, there's a Christian liberty. I can do whatever I want. But then Paul writes, you're in liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But then verse 18 says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Folks, if I'm, leading, if I'm under the Spirit, I'm not going to, I don't need the law. So if I'm not violating the speed limit, the law has no effect on me. If I'm going 65, it has no effect on me. But if I start going 75... It has an effect on me. It shows me that I am a lawbreaker. And he says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissension, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness. He lists all these things. And he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, folks, 
when somebody says I'm under grace, I can do what I want, and all those kind of things, there's two things. Either they're saved, and they're living in, living in disobedience, and they'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Or they have a false conversion. They were never converted in the first place. They have this false sense of security because he says here, who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're living in disobedience and there is no repercussions in your life, I'll tell you, if God's not disciplining you for the sin in your life, you are not saved. Because the Bible tells us God chastises those that he loves. So if he's not taking you to the woodshed, you're the one that he's writing about in Galatians here where he says, who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So when people live in sin and they're kind of proud of it, there's no consequences, they were never saved. They're not his. Because if you are his, the Holy Spirit will point you to the law and say, hey, you're wicked. The law says this. You're violating the law. But he says, here's the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. You see, if you're under the Spirit, there is no law. And those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, folks, I know our time is about up, but I don't want us to be legalists when it comes to the law, and I don't want us to be the liberals when it comes to the law. But the law does apply to us. And I'll end with this verse, because in 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul writes, but when we know that the law is good, how is the law good? If one uses it lawfully. So sometimes we use it unlawfully. That's the way, where all the confusion comes from because we become legalists when we have to do things. We become like the Pharisees. Or, again, the devil doesn't care which way he knocks you on the right side or the left side as long as he keeps you off the main road or on the left side where he says you can just do and live however you want. You're under grace. And people have that false sense of salvation, but they're never his to begin with. So it's important that in our time that we understand what applies as the law to us and what doesn't. You know, we're not killing sheep and goats and things like that. But the moral law is still binding to us. And he says the law is good if we use it lawfully. Let's pray.